Hello, and welcome to the first episode of the summer of 2010. Sorry for the infrequency of posts in the last fortnight, but final grades are now submitted and the summer has officially begun. I'd like to start things off with an episode recorded a while ago, but which I didn't have time to release before. It's a really fun conversation I had with my former student, Elizabeth Bateman, Washington College, class of 2009. Liz did her senior thesis on Tolkien, and it was titled, Not All Tears Are an Evil, Tolkien's Theory of Beautiful Tragedy in the Silmarillion and the Lord of the Rings. Last spring, Liz also presented a paper drawn from a chapter of her thesis at the annual Tolkien Conference at the University of Vermont, the only undergraduate to have a paper accepted to that conference. I referred to Liz's thesis at least once during the Tolkien class this past semester, and I was glad to get the chance to sit down with her and talk over some of the points she raises in her argument. We start with Liz's description of how she got interested in her topic. Well, what originally, reading the books for class, it was kind of interesting because we read The Silmarillion first and then Lord of the Rings, which the last time I'd read them in high school, I'd swapped that, which made it very difficult to read The Silmarillion because I was like, I don't even remember how this relates to like anything <laughs> anymore. But uh, anyway, so I, I'm reading the, the Fellowship and I get to the bit on Weathertop when Aragorn is talking to the hobbits and he stops Frodo from the, the, the Black Riders are all around and they're all worried and they're sitting around the fire and... Aragorn stops Frodo from telling this story about Gilgalad, which I would think that he'd want Frodo to talk about how Sauron... And then Sauron was defeated, and it was really great. I mean, he's yeah. back now, but back then it was really great. But he's like, no, 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 don't talk about that. Don't talk about that. I want to talk about, you know, this other Dark Lord who's even worse, and how, like, he made everyone really miserable a long time ago. And he tells the story of Baron and Luthien, and he's like, yeah, it's really super, super sad, but it's going to make you feel better you know, I promise. Except he doesn't say it quite like that. It's just me phrasing. <laughs> but, and then, you know, the hobbits really do feel better afterwards. And then, you know, after Aragorn stops telling the story, Frodo's all, you know, they get worried again and everything. Yeah, and well, it's <laughs> interesting because the, the, the Black Riders, that's like the moment when the Black Riders are closing in on right. the Dell. And the, the way, I mean, it's like immediately after Aragorn stops singing that they start closing in and everyone's mm -hmm. like, I have a very uncomfy feeling right now. <laughs> and of course, it's because the Black Riders are like right outside the Dell coming in. So, I mean, it, it, it gives almost the impression that the Black Riders are, 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 are right there waiting to attack except they're they're not while he's singing like they can't come in while he's singing the song of Baron and Luthien but as soon as he's done you know it's the green light for for the for the ringwraiths to, to come in and charge so i mean there seems to be almost really a direct link it's it's it it's, it's more than just comfort right i mean it's right. it's, it's actual and, like prevention and that's <laughs> and i was i also thought it was really interesting now since i had just read the silmarillion i was like wait a second because aragorn doesn't talk about the whole like and then they got to come back from death and it was really great and he yeah. makes it sound like he says like you know and after yeah and they came back and after a brief time walking you know they died again but it's like it had they had to have been after they came back from death they had to have been there at least like 20 years because like their son like grew up and left home so i mean they <laughs> yeah. were actually alive for a long time like together happy right. and he like just completely blows over like and then Luthien died and everyone's really sad and that's the end of the story and I remember being like blown away I was like why would he tell the story that way? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, so. I mean, it's, it's 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 doubly counterintuitive <laughs> in that way, right? I mean, you, you've got, I mean, as you said, there's the triumphant story, mm -hmm. which would seem like absolutely the best <laughs> one to tell, right? Yeah, okay, let's talk about, in case any, you know, minions of Sauron are listening, <laughs> how Sauron got his butt kicked before by by Elendil and Gilgalad and, and, and everybody. Um but yeah, so, but no, 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 no. Let's let's not tell that story. But you know, but instead, let's tell Baron and Luthien. Now, and, and of course, as you say, that's a a triumphant story too. Mm -hmm. uh, in some ways, even more triumphant than the defeat of Sauron in Mount Doom. But 
but that's not what he emphasizes. <laughs> Aragorn, like, almost aggressively skims over the triumphant aspects of it. It's it's the sadness of it that he emphasizes. Yeah, he just completely passes it off. Yeah. Know, a brief time. Come yeah, on now. You know, and like for a while, they were alive again. You know, it's like, well, they, they were resurrected. That yeah. was a big deal. But, but the resurrection is the point. And he doesn't even make it clear that that's what happened. Like you said, you know, they came back, but it's really vague. You don't really, yeah. if you hadn't read the story, you wouldn't know what he was talking about. And he doesn't mention the fact that Baron went and stole a Silmaril from Morgoth's crown and no one had ever been able to like even get down there before or did even try. Yeah, and, yeah. Well, and of yeah. course, in that story, in the story of Baron and Luthien, again, thinking of Sauron again, you mm-hmm. know, Sauron's butt-kicking that he got <laughs> at Mount Doom the first time from Gilgoad and Elendil mm-hmm. was nothing compared to the butt-kicking he got at the hands of Luthien. I mean, Luthien, single-handedly, you know, absolutely just blows Sauron out of the water, takes him prisoner, and, like, releases him when he begs for mercy. So, I mean, you know, but, mm-hmm. so again, that would also seem to be Intuitive, right? Hey, well, awesome. Great story to tell. Yeah, yeah. Let's, in case any minions of sound, let's tell the story about the time that, you know, this elven girl, you know, held your master down and made him beg for mercy. But no reference to that part of the story. Um, and you'd think the temptation would be, I mean, at least my temptation, right? If I'm applying the, the Baron and Luthien story to that situation... Even if I'm going to, for some reason, avoid the, hey, Sauron is fallible, see how evil can fall, we could beat evil again, because it's happened before, even Mm -hmm. to Sauron himself on several occasions. Even if you're not taking that angle, clearly, I mean, the most tempting take-home message from Baron and Luthien's story is that, hey, don't despair, right? I mean, there's hope. Even when things look horrible, there's hope, right? So here we are, and gosh, things look really bad right now, and the ring rates are kind of closing in, but but don't worry, evil won't triumph even, you know, because here's Baron and Luthien, they triumph over death, Baron dies, and she goes and brings him back, and they're, they're resurrected, and as you say, they live together in happiness for many years. Um, mm-hmm. But that's not the moral of the story. <laughs> the moral of the story is instead... They're suffering the, the death. Mm-hmm. Uh, Luthien died, and that was the most, she was the most beautiful person ever, and now she's gone, and we're never going to get her back. Is, yes, that's what yes, he talks the, about. The choice of mortality mm-hmm. and the consequences of that and the tragedy of that and how the elves... you know, he, It's like he tells it not from the human perspective, not sort of from Baron and Luthien's own perspective, mm-hmm. but from the... the the elven perspective, right? And they have lost, I mean, the, the last isn't, as, as I recall, uh, his last line in telling it is, you know, and they have lost her whom they most loved, mm-hmm. right? That's, so it's, uh, whether or not, you know, you say that the Baron, the story of Baron and Luthien themselves ends happily or tragically mm-hmm. to the rest of the elves. It's, it's just tragic because she's gone. And of course it's the same thing emphasized, with Arwen and Aragorn and with, you know, with, mm-hmm. with, you know, Arwen and Elrond's parting at the very end, you know, and they parted, you know, who were going to be parted, you know, for all the rest of the history of the earth. Yeah. So, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, you think, I mean, it makes sense that Aragorn would have that perspective because he grew up with the elves and all, but I mean, right. he's a man and he's talking to hobbits. I mean, they're mortal, so you'd think he'd be like, you know, mortality isn't so bad, you know, or, <laughs> or something, something to make them feel better. But it was interesting that it does seem to make them feel better, all this talking about grief and everything. And, I thought that was really interesting, so that's kind of what started me on the whole idea. Yeah, but. yeah, well, and, and especially, you know, I think I was I just had an exchange uh, with somebody over Twitter, actually, about the scene in the movie when Gandalf and Pippin are talking, when they're talking about death, and he mm-hmm. uh, is taking some lines from the book really significantly out of context. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, uh, 
you know, people probably remember the scene in the film, uh, you know, right when it looks like the bad guys are going to win and they're all going to die in Minas Tirith. And, uh, and Gandalf gives that speech to Pippin where he's like, mm-hmm. oh, death isn't such a bad thing. And he tells <laughs> them, like, seems to be describing what heaven is, or at least what the mm-hmm. afterlife is going to be like, and describes the, 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 the fair green country under a swift sunrise, mm-hmm. which is a line from the book. That is not a description of heaven or the afterlife at all. It's that that line in the book is from the last page or the second to last page of the Return of the King. It's Frodo's experience and sensation as he sails on the ship into the west. It's Valinor, which is the which is the the, the far green country under mm-hmm. a swift sunrise, not the afterlife. Uh, he is Frodo is going to go to Valinor, die, and then go to the afterlife. Yeah, but... Ironically, mortals can't stay there at all. It's like. <laughs> Overdose of divinity or something. Right, yes, exactly. exactly. <laughs> like just poisonous. Too much bliss for mortals to handle. Yeah, it's just an, an absolute bliss overload. But um, but yeah. So, but again, the interesting there is not not just the way that they sort of transposed that line and also claimed some things about the afterlife, which Tolkien never says about the afterlife. Mm-hmm. The whole point is that nobody knows exactly what happens to to mortals. But at least the elves certainly don't know what happens mm-hmm. to mortals. But um. But I think the really interesting thing there in the context, thinking back to the Weathertop point, <laughs> is that the impulse that, uh, that, that, that Peter Jackson and the other writers of the film have in that moment mm-hmm. is almost exactly the opposite of what <laughs> Tolkien does it's in true. like cases. You know, there, when everything looks dark and the bad guys are closing in, uh, Gandalf's message to Pippin in the film is... It's okay. It's really not that. It's really not that bad. This is not. It looks like a tragedy, but it's not really a tragedy because you know it's, um, you know, cheer up because like what's going to happen is going to be a good thing, and that's not the the comfort is tragedy itself. I mean, Aragorn tells a tragic tale, and and as you emphasize that which is I mean I think it was one of the one of the, the the points that you made in your thesis which I thought was so great. It's not just that he tells a tragic story, but the version of the story that he tells places all the emphasis on its tragedy and and de aggressively de-emphasizes the positive thing, the things from which you would seem most intuitively to derive hope in the way that Gandalf gives hope to Pippin in the film. So instead of saying, "Hey, cheer up," you know, look at the bright side of things or, you know, if things are going to get better or, you know, tragedy is only like a temporary illusion. And uh, instead, he he comes down on tragedy. He emphasizes tragedy mm-hmm. in those moments. So, uh, I, and that I think is, is a really fascinating, uh, a really fascinating dynamic that I think we can see in more than one place mm-hmm. in The Lord of the Rings. Like, um... The other passage that comes to mind is when Sam is in uh, Mordor and he sees this star. And he does have a moment where he's like, oh, you know, actually, things aren't that terrible, you right. know. But right. he also, and then he mentions the Baron and Luthien's river. But again, he, like, completely, like, passes over most of the happy stuff. And they're like, yeah, and, you know, and uh, I think he says that, like, you know, that sometimes the sad stories are, like, the best ones to land yourself in. And, yeah. and he says something with their story going on past happiness or something, right. you know, very right. big. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's just that they're... He says that the, uh, the, the tragic stories might not be the best ones to get landed in, but the best ones there, to hear. There you go. That's the right? one yeah, yeah, yeah. get mixed up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, and, and that's... Um, they go into darkness and beyond, mm-hmm. right? Um, and yes, it's, it's, it is a fascinating thing. I mean, I, I, you're right to bring up that moment with the star uh, mm-hmm. in Mortar. I mean, that's such a... You know, it's in the, uh, it's in the beginning of book six... Uh, mm-hmm. That is the second half of the Return of the King, um, 
right when it's one of the first nights that Frodo and Sam are together in Mordor after uh, Sam has released Frodo from the Tower of Kirith Ungol. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Sam is on watch and he looks, he's looking up at the sky and the clouds over Mordor part for just a moment and he sees the one star up above <laughs> and he looks up and, and in that moment he gains this sort of larger perspective and realizes that the shadow is but a small and passing thing and there is always, you know, high beauty and, and mm-hmm. joy that is beyond its reach. Uh, so there's no question, and I think it's important to emphasize this when we talk about the tragedy. Um, this is not at all to say either that Tolkien, you know, has like a broadly depressive point of view or <laughs> that he's really pessimistic. Um, it's not that he doesn't uh, insist on that. He does. He insists on the fact that evil is ultimately helpless, that evil is a small and passing thing, that there is, there is uh, the the good that is the outer framework of everything, you know, the good purposes and plan of, of Iluvatar can never be affected by any, by any evil choice of anybody. All all consequence, no matter how terrible evil is, it's all a passing thing. And yet that's not how we cheer people up. (laughs) When we tell stories, we don't tell, I mean, you know, not that stories of triumph are never told, but, Mm -hmm. uh, but in those moments, it's not from the stories of triumph that would seem to point beyond the local darkness and evil and out towards that, that, that wider um, context of good. Mm -hmm. It's not those stories that we tell. (laughs) It's the journey into darkness. It's, it's, it's tragedy. Um, and, and that's, again, it's, it's just, it's counterintuitive. It's mm-hmm. very much not what you would expect. And, and it's the same kind of thing where e- even though Sam is talking about how, you know, it isn't so bad. He still doesn't like, if I were Sam and I know the story, I would start drawing and be like, Hey, you know, like Frodo and I going into Mordor, it's kind of like what Baron and Luthien did was like going in, you know, in most dangerous place. And no one's ever done this kind of thing before really, except with the whole army with them and things <laughs> yeah. like that, you know, and like, you know, we're two people together, but he, he doesn't really, he doesn't talk about that at all. You know, he's just like, yeah, well we are in the same story, I guess. Yep. <laughs> he just kind of, you know, goes on and does what he needs to do. And, you know, doesn't seem to draw any encouragement from the fact of it, you know, hey, you know, this kind of thing has been done before, and, and you know, and they, they got out alive, kind of, you know. Yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah, kind of, temporarily, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, but that's the point. It's not mm-hmm. that, um, the point that Sam makes is that the stories with a happy ending you know, because of course he and Frodo talk about like, I wonder if our story is one of the ones with a happy ending or one with a sad ending. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and Sam insists that you know, although of course anyone who is in a story would kind of rather it be a happy <laughs> ending story, um, that the happy ending stories aren't the best ones to listen to. Uh, and again, this comes back to that same impulse that Aragorn seems to feel. Uh, you know, the, the the phrase he uses to the hobbits when he's introducing the Baron and Luthien song that he sings at, uh, on Weathertop is, this will lift your hearts, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I have just the pick-me-up <laughs> that you need. And it's a sad story, again, whose sadness is is, mm-hmm. is emphasized. As Sam says, it's it's not the happy ending stories that are always the best to hear, even when it seems like a happy ending story is really desirable under the circumstances. Um, yeah. so, I don't know if that would be a good, a good segue to talk about Nienna maybe for a little oh, while. Because yeah, yeah. that was kind of where I went next and I was thinking about it. Because, well, why would 
why would a sad story be so much more powerful or ennobling or something? And it right. seems to be that, like, at the very beginning when they're fighting with Melkor over like, songs and stuff, it's not like the big powerful song that finally defeats Melkor at the end. It's really sad little dirge kind of thing. Yeah. And they don't, it's not stated by the narrator if it's Nienna who's singing it, but I can't imagine who <laughs> else it would be because, I mean, I remember the first time I heard the film really, and it was so strange to me because, like, you can kind of figure out which pagan god the the Valar parallel to. I'm like, okay, so Olmo is kind of like Poseidon, and yeah. okay. And then I'm like, and Nienna cries all the time. <laughs> okay. I was like, I remember being very confused. I'm like, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna keep reading. I don't, I don't even know what's going on anymore. But, um, yeah, yeah. it really seems to be her, her function. She's like extremely powerful, actually, even yeah. though she hardly ever, you ever hardly ever see her do anything i think i counted she's mentioned like eight times right yeah no exactly exactly yeah and we should probably back up a little bit and ex- explain some more about yeah. the music of the Ainur. the very beginning of the silmarillion uh tolkien describes the creation myth of middle earth and of planet which is called arda and he so he describes the the chorus of these well they're like angelic beings mm-hmm. it's not well. exactly <laughs> angels but anyway they're spiritual beings Anyway, so they basically sing the world into being their own, the music that they make before Iluvatar, before God, is uh, is the the fabric from which the creation not only of the world but of history is is, is formed. And um, so, of course, during the music, the music gets disrupted uh, by Melkor, who rebels against uh, against the orchestration of. Iluvatar seeks to glorify his own part, and then there's discord and there's strife uh, in the music, and some sing with Melkor and some stay with the original themes. Uh, and when Iluvatar opposes the, the music of Melkor, the one which, which undermines him most effectively, mm. as Liz said, is this sweet, gentle theme, which is marked by sadness. And there's that wonderful line where he says, you know, that it's it, it was full of sadness from which its beauty chiefly came. That that the sadness of the third theme is what makes it beautiful. It's not beautiful despite its sadness. <laughs> it's beautiful because of its sadness. And that is the 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 theme which is which Melkor is unable to oppose. Um, so the the Valar, the chief of the beings who are ruling over Middle Earth, you know, Liz, as you said, they have these major roles that they play, mm-hmm. you know, Manway, who is in charge of the heavens and, and, and the winds, and Olmo, who's in charge of the seas. But one of them and is Nienna, who's in charge of sorrow, of mm-hmm. lamentation. And she just, yeah, as you say, she cries a lot. Yeah. And it seems strange, as you say, I mean, very, very unusual mm-hmm. uh, in a pantheon to have, yeah. you know, someone who's in charge of, of crying. Um, but the even stranger thing is that she is specifically pointed out, although she's not referred to very yeah. much, as you say, one of the times that she is, is to point out that she's one of the most powerful of all of them. You know that. Yeah, that, I mean, you'd almost think if she was the one who could defeat him in the first place, that she'd be a really good person to put up for, like, here, you, go deal with Morgoth, because <laughs> obviously you have this, you know, but that's not her thing, you know. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, and, and you know, the emphasis, when he does talk about Nienna in the one... Uh, in one of the few passages in which he actually develops Nienna and who she is, um, he he spends a lot of time talking about what the consequences, like what her power is, as mm-hmm. the, you know, what is in fact the use of a Valar <laughs> of weeping, and yeah. she she turns sorrow into wisdom. She she brings comfort 
not by just bringing people out of sorrow. You know, hers isn't like, hey, I'm going to help you stop being sorrowful, but rather I'm going to help you to take your sorrow and transform that sorrow into wisdom. Mm -hmm. Um, She, the reason I think that she's so powerful uh, and the reason that she, uh, as you say, although she's kind of in the background, seems to be one of the more potent anti melkor <laughs> forces yeah. is that it's like her job is to, is to, to bring good out of evil. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and the worst evil, the evil, which just leads people to weeping and lamentation that she makes into blessing, not by removing it, but mm-hmm. by transforming it and by making that thing itself into its own kind of triumph without having it ceasing to be tragic mm-hmm. because it, it, it's the sadness of that theme from which its beauty comes. And that's what she's all about. Yep, and uh, I think Gandalf is specifically mentioned as having been spent a lot of time with her and, and learned stuff. So then, it, it, reading the Lord of the Rings after that, you can kind of he talks about how like, oh, you know, you can't despair, and we're going to you know work through this kind of thing. And then he got his whole you know, all tears are an evil, and yes. it makes more sense if you're like, oh, okay, he's making reference to Nienna. Okay, now it makes more sense. Yeah, when you, <laughs> so. when, you when you see how when you find out who Nienna is and what she's about, mm-hmm. and then learn that uh, that Gandalf. In his early days, you know, back in Gandalf's salad days in Valinor, he uh, he was like one of her, I don't know if disciple is the right word, but anyway, yeah. he spent a lot of time with, mm-hmm. with Nienna. So yeah, yeah, hearing him say to the hobbits at the end of the Return of the King, um, you know, I won't say do not weep for not all tears are an evil. Um, you know, that's, uh, it does really kind of, con- mm-hmm. kind of contextualize that without undermining it. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. he could say something like... Um, more like the kind of thing that the Gandalf in the film says, right? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you guys are mortal. You'll all be dead in, uh, you know, a few decades <laughs> anyway at the outside. So it's only a temporary <laughs> parting, right? And then, you know, you'll go to the, probably you'll be reunited in the afterlife or something. So buck up, right? I mean, it's not goodbye forever. But that's never the kind of comfort uh, that <laughs> no. Gandalf gives. And it's not, it's not what is about. Again, it's never about denying or even just like, let's contextualize suffering, right? It's, it's the actual deriving of strength from the suffering itself that mm-hmm. the, the the not opposing e- uh, evil with good but tr- by transforming that evil into good in itself and yeah, that's just a remarkable thing again also always associated with wisdom which is another thing that nienna you know turns it into wisdom and everything like that so yeah 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 and i mean and and and, and his his role in in bringing comfort and encouragement to people, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's what he, I mean, think of what he does, of course, uh, in Rohan rather spectacularly, right? And, you know, turning, uh, turning trouble and despair into <laughs> confidence and, and, uh, you know, the, 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 his role as, as the encourager and builder mm-hmm. up of Theoden again, um, you know, and, and part of what he does there is to contradict delusions of dark he tells him go out of your hall and look abroad and you'll find it's not it's not quite as dark as as it seems it's not just about the denial or the refutation of the evil now of course i'd say of uh in all of tolkien's fiction probably Mm -hmm. the biggest challenge uh in the project of taking something sad and (laughs) tragic and and bringing good out of evil uh the the biggest challenge there would be the story of Turin Turambar. You know, uh, in, yes. <laughs> in the in the Silmarillion, there are two major stories. You know, who, which take the longest, you know, the biggest sections of the Silmarillion to tell, um, and which which really receive a lot of emphasis. They're like the you know the two greatest of the stories 
uh, from the first age. I think that's fair to say that mm-hmm. they're the two greatest stories. Certainly the longest. They're certainly so. the longest, yeah. Um, and Tolkien even says that it's not just that they happen in the manuscript to be the <laughs> longest. He actually says, you know, these are the two longest of all the stories that we're told. Um, one is the story of Baron and Luthien, which we've already talked about some. And of course, the other is the story of Turin Turambar. Um which is the story uh, which is told at greater length in the recently published uh, <laughs> Children of Hurin mm-hmm. uh, volume. That's a really sad story. Yes. You know, you want tragedy, <laughs> there you go. Right? Where you like, kind of get to the last few pages and you're like, okay, can't get, okay, really, wow. You know, like, you can't get much worse. Oh, wait, it just did. Yes. So, yes. and it, I, it's interesting because it's like the first time you really get an explicit, like, suicide. Like, yeah. where, you know, actually jumping off a cliff, falling on a sword, walking into the sea. Like, you never really get... Uh, like you get kind of an altruistic suicide like before that where somebody like sacrifices himself for somebody else that's a little different but it's not just my life is so horrible that I can't take it anymore and I'm going to kill myself yeah and it's not and the thing is the way that suicides are handled at the end of that story that it's not I mean we're going to be careful in in talking about but it's it's not obviously a bad thing it's not obvious that mm-hmm. their suicides are themselves an evil act at the end of those stories. I mean, it's, it is the most... But it's, it's like the logical fulfillment it, of the it's tragic It's true. Stories. I mean, I, I'm sure if Turin had decided to not kill himself, his life would only have somehow found a way to get worse. <laughs> I mean, yes. I don't even want to think about what other horrible <laughs> things could have happened. But, uh, I mean, yeah, definitely. In the, I mean, the whole story seems to be just kind of like a study. And, like, here's a character with some flaws, and we're just going to take those flaws to, like, the, the nth degree and see how he can, like, completely ruin his life. Yeah. You know? Oh, and, I mean, and that's the thing about Turin that makes it... I mean, it's... The combination of, right, you know, like mm-hmm. a, a bunch of the tragic things that happen are really his own fault. Mm-hmm. Some of them are not his own fault. I mean, he and his family are cursed by Morgoth. Right. And so you've got the, mm-hmm. the, you know, the evil power of, of Morgoth looming over their lives <laughs> and, and him manipulating, you know, through his agent, Glaurung the dragon and, right. you know, screwing with them. And, and, you know, so they are doing all that they can to make their lives horrible and succeeding many, many times. <laughs> exactly. But then, of course, it's, it's not just, it would be easier if you could just say, well, you know, he was persecuted, but he held up under it or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, of course, then you add on top of that his own flaws and the stupid things that he does and the fact that, you know, at the end of the day, he can't just look back and say, well, okay, my life sucked because I was cursed. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, he looks back and knows it was his own fault, you know, and he, I mean, he, that's in the moment of his suicide, that's what he emphasizes. And that's what the sword, when the sword talks mm-hmm. at the end, you know, he, 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 uh, um, he speaks to his sword and says, will you take my life? It's almost like Turin doesn't even really kill himself. <laughs> like, he just like it's true. The gives himself like, to okay. his sword. Yeah, and the sword is like, yes, okay, I will kill you. The sword actually speaks, and when the sword speaks, it says, uh, it talks about. It doesn't use the word atonement, but it's it, the ones he's slain unjustly or something yes. like that. Yeah, he cites the the death. You know that sword has been used mm-hmm. by Turin to kill uh, Tur- Turin's own best friend, Belling Strongbow, in. Just one of the most horrible, heartwarming <laughs> yeah. moments in any story that I know, I know. of, um, and and of course, and slay Brandir, the leader of the people who had taken mm-hmm. Turin in, um, for understandable reasons, but yet unjustly, as the sword points out. Yeah. Um, you know, so that basically it says, you know, I have been used, you know, by you, Turin, <laughs> uh, to kill several people unjustly. Um, I will 
I will shed your blood. Um, <laughs> and he doesn't say, like, in compensation, but, but mm-hmm. they, basically that there's, from the sword's perspective, clearly there is an element of justice in the death of Turin there. Mm-hmm. Um, and Turin doesn't oppose that. You know, he recognizes... He has made a horrible mess of things, but again, but it's but it's also it's not just him, right? He's right. not just like a really bad guy who's done horrible things. <laughs> Most of the things he does that make a certain amount of sense is just kind of like a mixture of his own kind of not good choices, and then like the things that Glaurung does, it just combines to make a total mess. Yeah. So and yeah. and you can definitely see it's interesting to see Turin get progressively like worse as he goes on because he starts out to be like a pretty good guy just a little prideful and then like but at the end he like you know when he kills Brandir he just like whips yeah. out his sword and kills him for I mean yes he said something that Turin didn't want to hear but it wasn't <laughs> like he was actually in, in danger you know you could yeah. understand the yeah. thing with Belic he thought he was going to be killed so right. he, right. you know whipped out right. his sword then but like the thing with Brandir he's just like. You know. well, and it's, I mean, especially with the emphasis, you know, <laughs> Brandir is 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 club footed, and I yeah. mean, so he's got this guy who who is who whom Turin mocks for not being able to be a warrior and fight mm-hmm. for his people. So you've got this guy who's like literally helpless, and Turin, who's the great, you know, one of the greatest warriors of all time, and you know, so just the way that it's, I mean, that's just like an execution. I mean, it's yeah. not even a fight. It's not even he just. Um, you know, he just murders Brandir, and again, he mm-hmm. thinks that he is justified for doing <laughs> it. And you know, it's not that you can't see any of his rationale, mm-hmm. uh, and it certainly, you know, his anger at Brandir is understandable. But, uh, but you just you, you can't do that. Yeah, <laughs> you just no. can't do that. So, but, but I mean, so all the things these things contribute to, uh, to, to again making this this story. And of course, we haven't even mentioned the incest and all that. But, oh, yeah. um, but it, it's just it's it's so sad. It is like it, it, that story is so as you say unremittingly tragic. Like yeah. you keep thinking it won't get worse, and it does. And uh, and yet that story mm-hmm. is also applied in uh, positive ways. Mm-hmm. Um, like the the only time when any, any character actually mentions. Turin was in Elrond's talking about uh, compare when when Frodo first says he'll he'll take the Ring of Mordor. He's like compares him compares him to Baron first, but then he mentions Turin in the yeah. same sentence with like elf friends and, and yes. seems to think, oh yeah, well you know Turin did do some good things, but you know completely skips over the fact that Turin had like kind of directly led to the downfall of it one of the biggest elf kingdoms yeah, ever and yeah. you know killed some elves and done a lot of bad things <laughs> right exactly i mean yeah it's it's that that speech when elrond says you know frodo for taking the ring um basically you're gonna go into the elf hall of fame you know you're, you're gonna go into well not the elf hall of fame the the more the elf friend hall of fame right mm-hmm. you're, you're gonna be a, among the greatest uh, not even baron turin or 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 <laughs> does he mention horan i he think does. so yeah, yeah he does mention Hurin. turin's dad um your place would be among them, right? So you're, you're going straight into the Hall of Fame. Um, but yeah, I, the big question is, well, gosh, like, why is Turin in the Hall of Fame, right? I mean, he, he, any purely pragmatic assessment of Turin's career, mm-hmm. I mean, you you kind of have to. I mean, sure, he was close friends with elves and he had mm-hmm. very close relationships with elves. And he was great in several dimensions. I mean, he was... One of the strongest, one of the greatest warriors, the, I mean, one of the most interesting things, I think, the most beautiful, the most mm-hmm. physically attractive <laughs> man ever to live, uh, which is sort of as a, an, an interesting item on Turin's resume, but yeah. <laughs> uh, so beautiful he's mistaken for an elf, you know, elf man is one of the things that he's, yeah. you know, one of his, like, 
147 nicknames, but God. Um, <laughs> anyway, hard to keep track of all those. Yes, yes, but uh, but yet, I mean, again, when you look at what he actually does and what he actually mm-hmm. accomplishes, I mean, you got to think as far as like for the for the cause of elfdom in Middle Earth, <laughs> like his career was a net loss, right? Yeah, I mean, it's... and I mean, even the friends he has who are elves, I'm pretty sure Belig mentions at one point, you know, like I eh, probably would have been better if I hadn't met you. And, right. and the, um, <laughs> right. oh, what's the name of the guy who was in love with Finduila? Say. The elf dude. Gu- uh, Gwyndor. Yeah, Gwyndor. Gwyndor. I, I know he says, at least in the Children of Hearn, he's like, yes. I wish I'd never met you. Right. You completely ruined my life. Right. And yeah. my life was already ruined. <laughs> right. you know? I, I, I rescued you and nursed you back to health, and I really regret that now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In retrospect, so. that was a bad move on my part. Yeah, yeah I mean, even though... At the same, he's not saying, you know, now I hate you and I'm being petty. You know, he's saying, mm-hmm. look, I love you. I, you know, yeah. I, I'm grateful to you, and I, I, I still I admire and respect you. But, but at the end of the day, <laughs> it would have been better had I not had I not uh, brought you back. Yeah, but the fact that Elrond later on can say, yeah, you know, he was a he was an elf friend. You totally know? in the Hall of Fame, mm-hmm. Turin. And so yeah, I mean, <laughs> that that mention by itself is interesting. And of course, one uh, passage in the Silmarillion itself that I think is really mm-hmm. interesting there. Uh, um, one of the most fascinating elements of that story is the bit at the very end that, you know, there's, so there's the, there's one place next to the river where, uh, Turin's sister throws herself off the cliff into the river and dies. Mm-hmm. Then Turin stabs himself and dies on that spot. And, uh, then his dad, Hurin, is released and goes there and finds their mom hanging out there, though she found neither one of them and doesn't know what happened to them. Mm-hmm. And then right, right after he meets her, she dies. And so he buries her there, and Hurin being the only survivor of his family, both of his, all of his children, all three of his children, mm-hmm. and his wife are now dead. And so he buries her, erects a tombstone for, for the three of them, right, all of whom died right there. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and then there's just that fascinating, uh, that fascinating description that that monument mm-hmm. is the one thing, the one physical location that survives. At the end of the first age, all of Beleriand, the whole, con- the whole, that whole subcontinent <laughs> sinks beneath the waves. It's gone. It's mm-hmm. just, it's, except the gravesite of the children of Hurin and and of it, Morwen, it, which. It seems really, really counterintuitive, especially if you think about, like, there are all these other really famous graves, like there's Finrod and Fingolfin, and yes. well, Varian and Luthien don't even really have graves. It's very right. mysterious. You never find yes. out where they are. But, um, but yeah, you, you'd think who had, people who had accomplished really great things or, like, sacrificed themselves for others. Like, I mean, that's what, pretty much what Finrod did. He was uh, hanging out with Baron at the time. And uh, so you, you would think that they would be way higher on the list of graves to be saved and turn <laughs> would be, like, down at the bottom, you know, but... But yeah, the fact that they're preserved, and it seems to be, if any, like, who would have the power to do that? It would be like, you know, must be like Iluvatar would be the yeah. only person who'd be able to, like, do something like that. It's really interesting. It seems to suggest that, that his story did actually have some, some worth, some kind of positive yeah. aspect, even though it's really hard to see it at the end of the story. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's, there is no... Tolkien leaves no naturalistic explanation for that fact because it is very it is certainly not true that it's I mean that it's the highest point I mean it, <laughs> it's from a pure altitude basis it's not like it's the highest point and therefore everything else sinks except that right. I mean you know mountain ranges fall and everything else but this one mm-hmm. spot of of ground on the side of a river <laughs> stays stays above the waves and that's clearly very intentional I mean mm-hmm. it's, it's obvious that and Tolkien is really shedding a spotlight. Um, that when everything else in Beleriand is gone, I mean, in a sense, you get that as the the physical marker 
of this tragic story, mm-hmm. uh, the resting place of the 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 resting place. Of course, that uh, uh, that phrase is often used very lightly. In this story, it seems particularly relevant and important. They're mm-hmm. at rest, finally. Goodness yeah. knows, their <laughs> lives were horrible. Now they're at rest. The resting place of the family of Hurin, um, that's, in the end, I mean, it's preserved as the monument of Beleriand, like the yeah. whole First Age. That's the monument of the First Age. As you say, there are other things. I mean, the uh, the grave of Fingolfin, right, mm-hmm. who, who valiantly goes and fights Morgoth hand-to-hand and wounds him and... Uh, right. And, and that's really great. And his his grave is made a big deal of, right? He's mm-hmm. taken and he's buried and the flowers ever grow upon his grave and everything. And it's up on a mountaintop even. I yeah. mean, how convenient would that be? There's, there's like, you know, until everything sank beneath the waves. <laughs> right, exactly. And, and Finrod's grave did the same thing. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, Finrod, uh, Finrod is buried on the island that Sauron took, the, right. where, where he built the city that was originally named Minas mm-hmm. Tirith, that the Gondor city was named after. Um and uh, and so he uh, he's he's buried there. So yeah, you have all of these, and either one of them, mm-hmm. it seems uh, at at first blush would serve as a more fitting testament to what happened in the first age. Mm-hmm. Right here is the uh, the 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 noble, you know, with Fingolfin. Right, Fingolfin is a perfect representation. He's the guy. He's the high king of the Noldor mm-hmm. in Middle Earth, uh, and they're trying to they're trying to 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 you know barricade. Uh, you know, Melkor and the orcs and, and all the forces of evil into his fortress in the north. Um, and then, you know, he breaks out and it looks like everything has fallen. So in despair, he goes, challenges Morgoth to single combat, is valiantly killed. And that would seem to be a perfect representation, right? <laughs> right. Of the struggle of the Noldor, the helpless struggle of the Noldor mm-hmm. against Morgoth. And so wouldn't, that would be a great way to commemorate the first age, right? That's like the first age in a, nuts, <laughs> in a nutshell. But no, no. Finrod, okay, well, hey, there's, there's another element there, right? Finrod dies to save Baron, right? So, okay, mm-hmm. so you not only have the hopeless struggle of the Noldor against Melkor and his works, but also now the unity uh, between mm-hmm. the elves and men, you know, and this like self sacrifice. Yeah, and, and, and this wonderful example of, mm-hmm. of, of elves and, and, and men sacrificing for each other and working mm-hmm. together, which doesn't usually happen. And that would be even better than the monument of Fingolfin. But no, 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 no. No. The monument for the first <laughs> age is the family, the horribly tragic family of Hornin. It's a passing reference. I mean, it only gives it mm-hmm. a few lines in the yeah. Silmarillion, but it is such a striking moment. Um, it, it, in the end, I think it, it, it makes for a really bright spotlight that, mm-hmm. that he shines onto that story. And, of course, the length of the story. This is the longest story. This is, you know, We're going to put down the, the tragedy story. in excruciating detail. <laughs> We're going to tell right. you every horrible thing that happened. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And just in case it, that wasn't enough, in The Children of Hurin, you get another a couple hundred pages of it. <laughs> so again, it, we come back to the same thing. Mm-hmm. Let's spotlight the tragedy, not gloss over the tragedy, not contextualize the tragedy, mm-hmm. not rebut the tragedy with positive and happy things, mm-hmm. but but really go there. Yeah, and even like the, they call it the, the, is it the grave of the hapless or the stone of the hapless? The stone of the hapless, I think, is what it's called, which is interesting. It's not even called like, you know, the grave of Turin, that mighty warrior who, right, you know, right, it's, right. it's just, you know. That member of the Hall of Fame of <laughs> Elf Friends, right, 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 right. It's like, you know, this is the, the grave of like people who like had no chance. There was yes. nothing they, they could have done and it ended horribly, but here's their grave and we should remember it, kind of, you know, yeah, seems to be yeah. the emphasis there. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah, it's. 
it is on their haplessness. That's what it's like—a mm-hmm. monument to haplessness, right? The, yeah. To their misfortune, right? To the mm-hmm. to the uh, to the tragedy of their lives. I mean, it's that's it's like a, it's like explicitly named that. Yeah. Yeah. And even turn story seems to kind of in uh, the fact that it's like mortals who are buried there. It seems to kind of emphasize the whole you know humans kind of threw themselves in with the elves. They're like it wasn't originally their fight, but by joining with the elves, they had to join in the tragedy. Right. 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 Okay. So the question then is, you know, <laughs> all right, so at the end of the day, where are we? You know, obviously the big question is, so why? Why does Tolkien do this? You know, what what is the function of tragedy that uh, makes Tolkien not want to escape tragedy, but actually to, to, to dwell on it, to go there in times of distress? <laughs> you know, why is it that the tragic elements of the story of Baron and Luthien are going to lift the the hobbit's hearts why is it that the tragic story of baron and luthien <laughs> is what's going to keep the ringwraiths at bay mm-hmm. uh in in rivendell that's the big question yeah, well, it seems to me I, I think in the lord of the rings it's a little more more clear that that the the point of like you know when, when frodo and sam and mordor and things look really really bad that it wouldn't be good for them to be like, yeah, you know, but things might work out one day. Like, it's better for them to be like, you know, things probably aren't going to work out, but we're <laughs> going to go anyway, and we're going to do the right thing, even though we probably won't be rewarded, and things are probably going to go horribly, but we're going to do the right thing anyway. So that seems to be kind of the the focus there anyway. And um, I yeah. thought it was interesting when I was reading, like, other other. I couldn't find a whole lot on specifically on the Tolkien's treatment of tragedy, but when I would read other authors, they'd be like, yeah, and especially about turns, they'd be like, yeah, and this shows that, you know, Tolkien was really pessimistic about humanity. And I was like, well, I don't know if that's really the take-home point. I mean, <laughs> yes, he clearly thought that humans were deeply flawed, but, but the, you know, the whole fact that, that they have this grave at the end and everything seems to point to that, that we can do better things. Yeah, there clearly is value there. It's <laughs> mm-hmm. not, it's... It does, just as the sadness of the third theme of the music of the Ainur at the beginning is what, you know, is, is you know, what works to undo, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, Melkor, there is beauty in that sadness. It's not just, hey, everything's sad and therefore everything sucks. That's, <laughs> that's not the take home. Mm-hmm. And thinking back to Sam's reference about sad endings and happy endings, there's also, you can see some, and thinking about what you were just saying about, um, not comforting yourself in times of duress by saying, hey, maybe things are going to end well. Mm-hmm. You can see there's an element, and it's unclear whether or not Sam is thinking about this explicitly, but implicit in what he says is a sense of self-sacrifice, mm-hmm. right? It's true that uh, the sad ending stories aren't <laughs> the best ones to get landed in, but they're the best ones to hear. That is, for the people... The principles in the story, it's not so great. But for those listening, it is great. In other words, good will be brought not not to you, possibly, <laughs> but good will be brought to others right. by the fact, by, through your tragedy. So that, you know, goodness knows there are lots of examples of triumphant stories. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the central ideas of Tolkien's concept of fairy stories and his essay on fairy stories and, and you know at the heart or near the heart anyway of, of the, the consolation and benefit of fantasy is what he describes as you catastrophe the the good disaster the the the, the sudden turn um you know the eagles sweeping down in the battle of five armies when everything looks lost and bringing so that idea of sudden and unexpected triumph of grace being shown in this unexpected and dramatic mm-hmm. way is a huge element in tolkien's stories <laughs> And that's what makes it, I think, so interesting. (laughs) 
That's not, but it's not the whole story. Mm-hmm. The fact is, not all stories end happily. Not all people live happily ever after. Right. But that doesn't mean that they're not really awesome <laughs> stories. Exactly. And it seems to think that, especially the way that the Baron and Luthiens are, they always don't talk about. It, it seems to be like. It's also almost an idea that it would cheapen the story to talk about the, the happy parts. Be like, no, 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 no. That, that's really, that detracts from the worth of this story. The worth <laughs> is in the really horrible things that they had to go through. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's, you know, and so like I said with Sam, it's self-sacrificial, right? It, mm-hmm. If you're in, if you find yourself in a sad ending story, <laughs> and let's face facts, your, your story <laughs> might be a, a sad ending story. Mm-hmm. You know, Sam is confronting that reality in that moment. Um, and, you know, and, and the implication is that, well, all of us, all of our stories, might be sad ending just because Tolkien's stories are often you catastrophic that because he believes in happy endings right mm-hmm. remember Bilbo's uh, comment at the end when he's talking to Frodo and Rivendell right mm-hmm. and, uh, and Bilbo asks Frodo if he's thought of an ending to, to his story and Frodo says yes many dark and, uh, uh, and and terrible ones and Bilbo says oh no no books should have good endings right? they should have happy endings but not all stories do have happy endings and yet the point is, the sad endings are good endings. Mm-hmm. They might not be happy for the people involved, but they're good endings. And good com- just as Nienna brings good out of evil, just as wisdom comes from suffering and great good from evil that has happened. Mm-hmm. So even if your ending is a sad ending for yourself in the yeah. course of your life, <laughs> um, good will come of that. It's really remarkable that Tolkien can do both of those things. Yeah, it's really impressive, I <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, he doesn't just hang on the one side of it. I mean, because anyway, and I've, I've, I've heard, I've heard some people criticize Tolkien um, for the happy ending business. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, oh, you know, like, oh, well, but oh, but look, everything turns out well <laughs> after all. Um, and even, you know, in those moments, like with Bilbo, he seems mm-hmm. to defend, no, 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 stories should have good endings. And, and on fairy stories, he, he, he insists on that. You know, mm-hmm. it, if it, if a fairy story doesn't have a good ending, you know, <laughs> doesn't have, you know, that you catastrophic turn. You know, it's not really a legit fairy story, right? So, but yet somebody who insists on happy endings like that, people who would say, "Oh, it's so simplistic, it's so formulaic," you know, it's so uh, it's it's just escapism. That's not how the real world is. I mean, mm-hmm. look, there's, you know, Tolkien is remarkable for being in in touch with how the real world is. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's not all stories do end happily, and yet. I guess the thing, you know, to sort of to tie it back again to that larger context, because it's still true, that vision that Sam has of the star above the shadow, it is mm-hmm. true that at the end of the day, evil is a passing thing, and evil can never ultimately thwart the purposes of good. Mm-hmm. There, are, there are definitely happy stories, there are definitely sad stories, but in the end, they're all good stories. Right. And that, I think, is the, the amazing thing that he pulls off and pulls together in the end. All right. I hope to post a number of these conversations this summer. The next one will be the conversation I had with Michael Drought last month during his visit to Washington College. I also plan to be available a little more regularly for Skype sessions and general Q&A. I'm always glad to hear from listeners and to try to answer any questions that you have. In fact, I plan to be available for a Skype session on Thursday, May 20th at 10 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time. My Skype name is just Tolkien Professor without a space between the words. I look forward to hearing from you. I'll be posting reminders through Facebook and Twitter uh, about that time as it approaches. I will also be going back to work on the Hobbit series starting next week, so look for Hobbit Lecture 5 Part 2 in the next week or so. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.